Hello and welcome to the Public Procurement Podcast with me, Pedro Teles. I'm interviewing today Abby Sample, a procurement consultant and postgraduate student at the University of London Birkbeck College, runs the blog Public Procurement Analysis. She's also an expert in sustainability and procurement. Earlier this year, Abby was one of the first authors out of the gate with the Practical Guide to Public Procurement, a book about the new Public Procurement Directives. There were many topics we could have chosen for our talk today, but we settled on one slightly different from usual. Today's talk is focused on the future of public procurement, more specifically how procurement may look in 2025. Hello, Abby. Thank you for coming to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. We were discussing when we were setting up the interview what topics we could cover and what questions we should go for. One of the first ones you suggested, I think, is very, very good. If you look ahead for the next 10 years or so, what we perceive is going to be the changes to the market in public procurement in Europe. Will there be more, fewer contracts advertised and more or less competition? Yeah, well, it's maybe a bit of a risky topic for me to have proposed because I think most people throughout history who have tried to predict the future have been proven wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's often interesting to see in which ways they were proven wrong. So it's maybe a little bit dangerous to talk about this. But never mind, you know, it's a Monday morning, so may as well get stuck in. So, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of that question of, you know, more or fewer contracts, I mean, I think for me, the big question is, At what level are contracts being advertised? Are we just talking about OJU advertisements or are we talking about national databases, national websites? And my guess would be is that you're going to have about the same number of contracts advertised in the OJU, but a lot more contracts being advertised in, uh, in national websites at national level and a lot more potential, at least, for cross-border competition via those those national portals as they sort of gear up and I don't know whether they'll all be following similar standards, but that at least they'll become more intelligible, more accessible to bidders outside of the member states where, where they're being advertised. So you, you reckon that is not going to be a, a big change above the thresholds and if there's be any change at all, it's going to be below thresholds? Yeah, that would be my best guess because, I mean, if you look at, you know, what's advertised in the OJU at present, I mean, you see some really interesting trends in terms of which countries are advertising the most contracts. And it tends to be the newer accession states who are actually advertising a lot of contracts and many of those are low threshold contracts. So I think in some cases there's a little bit of over-anxiety about advertising. In some cases, those advertisements might be required because they're receiving EU funding for a specific project or contract. But I think if you look at some of the older member states, you know, like Germany, for example, Germany advertises a very low number of contracts, you know, and that's partly because they have a very decentralized procurement system. But I do think you find that as time goes on, countries get used to the idea of they don't actually need to advertise every contract in the OJU. And as procurement potentially becomes a bit more competitive below threshold within a member state, you know, you see, okay, we're actually getting adequate competition by advertising at national level. In terms of the national advertising of contracts, do you reckon that just by the fact that those contracts are going to be advertised, albeit in a national portal, those contracts will more likely be subject to cross-border interest and more likely may attract the actual interest from cross-border economic operators? 
Yeah, I think the potential is there. And again, if we're going to get our crystal balls out, we need to think about, okay, well, what are governments going to be buying in 2025? You know, and we've certainly seen a move over time. You know, okay, the governments to some extent are still buying hard supplies, but, you know, there's been a general move towards buying services over the past 15, 20 years. You know, and that partly reflects the fact that certain functions of government have, have been privatized or they've been partially privatized or that things are being outsourced through service contracts, whereas previously there might have been a supply contract with a service element being provided in-house by, by a public authority. So that's been a trend in quite a few European countries. And so I think if you look at, okay, is it, if it's service contracts being advertised, what is the nature of those services? And I think we sometimes talk about cross-border procurement as if it's just a question of access, you know, that, that companies can know about contracting opportunities and then they'll bid for them. But of course, they also have to actually be able to deliver those contracts. So, you know, if it's the type of contract, like, say, a social care contract, where you very much need to have a strong presence on the ground, you need to be able to work with employees in the location where the contract is going to be delivered, then, you know, I kind of doubt we're going to see huge amounts of direct cross-border procurement for those type of contracts. On the other hand, we see a move towards things like printing, digital services, data services, all of those obviously have huge potential to be outsourced on a cross-border basis. So I think we would see more in that sector. So the question of the overall amount of cross-border procurement that we're going to see depends, first of all, on what type of contracts are being advertised and then sort of secondarily, I think, on how accessible are those contracts to bidders in other member states. I think you've touched on a, on a point that is very important, which is the one about the kinds of services that are being procured right now or going to be procured in the future. I mean, if you look at the development of digital services in general, we see that their importance has been increasing in terms of GDP, in terms of percentage of GDP, as time goes on, and it's not going to stop there. So it's just a question of time to that kind of influence to start to be seen as well in public procurement. So one of the things I think will happen in the near future is that we're going to have a lot more digital services being acquired and being procured. And by definition, those digital services, by and large, come in at values well below the current threshold levels. So that's one of these discussions that I've been pushing forward over the last couple of years now, which is what should we do to the thresholds going forward? Yeah, yeah, and I've certainly I've read some of your work on that, and I think it is quite a big point to raise what is going to happen with digital services, and you know, should we be looking at lower thresholds? Should we be getting rid of the idea of thresholds? I think again, being realistic about what's going to happen in the next ten years, I think it's probably unlikely that the thresholds are going to go way down. From my point of view, partly because they're linked as well to international agreements that are in place, whether it's the WTO, Government Procurement Agreement, or these bilateral trade agreements, which are potentially going to come into effect over the next few years. And I think there would probably be a reluctance to lower the thresholds if that's going to be then passed on to other third countries as well. So whether we start to look at a sort of two-tier threshold system where one threshold applies in the European Union and another in respect of third countries... I don't know whether that's realistic, but I think beyond the sort of issue of, okay, are these contracts subject to the EU rules? Are they advertised at EU level? I think there is a more fundamental issue in terms of digital services and in general ICT type contracts. You know, are they 
appropriate for public procurement, you know, the way public procurement runs, you know, this idea that you can sort of have a competition and define outputs and award a contract and then sort of stick to those outputs. And I think for some of the more straightforward contracts, that's fine. But increasingly, we find there's a long list of failed digital services or failed ICT procurements, not only in the UK and Ireland, but elsewhere, you know, so I think that is a real challenge for for the rules and, and how we apply the rules to those type of contracts. I remember having a conversation uh, a few months ago or last year with Frank Brunette, the Canadian procurement ombudsman, and he was making a suggestion that actually makes a lot of sense, which is, if you think about it, the way that procurement is run today, it's based on premises and ideas which were designed to allow for the procurement of goods and works. And that is a very different kind of exercise that perhaps the procurement of services would require. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And and you still see that. I mean, maybe a little bit less so in, in the 2014 directives compared to the 2004 predecessors. But it's quite clear that they are written from that point of view of, you know, being able to define an output of having a pretty good idea of what it is. That said, we have seen introduction of obviously the competitive dialogue and more recently the competitive procedure with negotiation and I mean, competitive dialogue, as you well know, you know, in particular is because uh, I know you're, it's one of your many areas of, of expertise, Peter, but, uh, you know, it is designed in particular to be appropriate for those type of contracts. But unfortunately, from my point of view, you know, we've seen a bit of a backlash against it in the UK. There's a lot of countries where it's never been used at all or used only very rarely, which I think is a real shame because I think it does have the potential to really, you know, for ICT contracts or complex digital services to be the right procedure. I agree with you. Well, moving on to the second topic, what kinds of award criteria and procedures do you think will be the most common? One of the things that I have as a big question mark in my mind, because it's an area where I've done a bit of work recently, is this idea of life cycle costing, you know, which has always been possible if you're using most economically advantageous tender as your award criterion. It's always been possible to apply a life cycle costing approach. And what we see in the most recent European directives is that there's been an attempt to set more detailed rules around how you do life cycle costing, what information you can ask for. And there's concepts of you know, information data that can be provided with reasonable effort by a normally diligent operator, which I think will be an interesting one if it gets litigated, which I think it it probably will at some point in the next 10 years. But so, you know, that's one question in my mind. Are people actually going to use life cycle costing or are they going to be scared off it by the fact that there are more detailed rules around it and that there is a potential for an operator to challenge the use of life cycle costing if they don't like the outcome, for example? I think what we're seeing across industries are that supply chains are getting more complex, that the level of data that people are looking for is really unprecedented. So it is a challenge, and it's a challenge which some companies are very well aware of and are working hard to address, but obviously not all of them. Do you think that lifecycle costing is going to be used a lot over the next decade? I think there will be a desire to use it. I think it's something that that people are aware of. I think it makes sense. You know, it makes economic sense as well as environmental sense. So I think as procurement becomes more professionalized, as it becomes a bit more sophisticated, I think definitely the idea of awarding a contract based on purchase price alone is going to become a bit of an anachronism, except for maybe some very basic types of supplies or commodities. 
So yes, I think in general we'll see more of it, but there's this question of are people going to call it life cycle costing or are they just going to say, look, here's our form of tender and we want you to list the following eight things and not refer to it under this idea of life cycle costing. In terms of procedures, which ones do you think are going to be the most common? The open procedure, I think, will continue to be used. There are people who say open procedure, you know, is too basic, it doesn't make sense. But I think, you know, the open procedure is always going to work well for certain types of requirement. And we know that at the moment, I think it accounts for about three quarters or at least two thirds of procedures advertised in the OGs. Except in the UK. Except in the UK, (laughs) yeah. So the UK and, and Ireland have always been a bit of an exception to that. And, you know, there's been a preference for the open and restricted procedure. It's interesting because some of the figures I've seen suggest, okay, one of the reasons for that is that, particularly in Ireland, actually, that procurement tends to be more competitive. You know, that if you're running an open procedure, even for a relatively low value contract, you could be getting 30 or 40 tenders. And some of those will be cross-border tenders often because, you know, the fact that we're running procedures in English and quite a few Europeans now have English as a very strong second language just means that, you know, there is an experience of receiving more, more tenders. So I think for that reason, local authorities, you know, local authority procurement tends to be a bit more competitive than central government procurement. They have said, right, well, we're going to use the restricted procedure because we just don't have the resources to deal with, you know, assessing uh, 30 or 40 tenders every time we procure a relatively small value requirement. So I think that that tendency will continue to exist. But the thing that's changed under the new directives is that the restricted procedure, you know, you have these more extensive publication requirements at the beginning of a restricted procedure. So if you look at Article 53 of the Public Sector Directive, it says that you have to have full and freely available online from the date of a contract notice, um, the procurement documents. And it's a little bit ambiguous as to whether that includes your invitation to tender, which formerly would have been a sort of second stage publication but now it looks like you have to publish it at the outset unless you have a reason for not doing that. So I think, perversely, that might actually encourage people to go for it for the open procedure because they're going to say, well, we're going to have to publish everything at the outset anyways, so we may as well just go open procedure. I've got a comment about Ireland. I understand what you say in terms of the language, and it makes mm-hmm. a little bit of sense. However, I mean, tenders here in the UK are also in English, and the UK is probably one of the member states with the lowest levels of cross-border procurement, as in uh, foreign economic operators actually winning tenders in the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing is, I mean, the, the figures on that, I think we do have to take them with a grain of salt. I know. I cite them, and, and you cite them, and everyone else cites them, but it's... I think in general, we're talking about that one study that was published in 2011 uh, on cross-border procurement. And while, you know, I think it's very, very valuable to have that study, even within that, we saw, okay, yes, there are issues with methodology in terms of sampling. There are issues in terms of the quality of information we're able to get from OJU award notices. So, I mean, I I think it's probably accurate to say, look, there are not huge amounts of direct cross-border procurement happening And when you get into the sort of more complex questions like, okay, well, what about indirect cross-border procurement? What about use of subcontracting? I think we do definitely have to take those findings with a grain of salt. That said, I think it probably is true that in the larger member states like the United Kingdom, you're always going to have lower levels of cross-border procurement because you simply have a bigger domestic economy. And you have a greater chance that economic operators will see it as being worth their while, you know, if they're serious about tendering for, for government business to set up 
an office in that member state. And also it's more likely that you're going to have a supplier inside the country that's going to be competitive enough to win the contract. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it is interesting, again, you know, whilst accepting that we can't take them as gospel, you know, looking at at the, the findings from that study, that you do see patterns of, okay, like Ireland actually has pretty high rates of cross-border procurement, partly because there's two countries and the one island, you know, so that obviously there's, there's Northern Irish companies bidding for contracts in the Republic and, and vice versa. So that automatically puts the numbers up. But then you see countries that share a language, obviously, you know, Germany and Austria, you see slightly higher levels of, of cross-border procurement between them. So there's all kinds of interesting patterns there that kind of give you an insight into where this is happening and perhaps why it's happening. Okay, let's go on to the third topic. Will procurement challenges be more or less frequent? Yeah, so I think this is one that obviously is of interest to the lawyers, but also of interest (laughs) uh, to contracting authorities, because there is at the moment a big discrepancy in the frequency of challenges between member states. And I think... You know, it's an issue I looked at a little bit in, in my book, you know, in terms of, well, I, I focus particularly on, on the UK and Ireland, but I think the major thing we have to take into account is the cost of bringing those challenges. And for as long as you have a system which requires bidders to bring a challenge in one of the higher courts, that's going to be extremely expensive. And even though the threat of procurement challenges might always be there, the actual number of challenges which make it through to court are going to be reasonably low in those jurisdictions. In a way, that's kind of beside the point, because the thing about procurement challenges, a lot of it is hidden. We don't see the letters that contracting authorities receive. We don't see how they react to those letters for anything that falls short of court proceedings, usually in the United Kingdom and Ireland. Then obviously in other member states, such as, for example, Sweden, where they have a you know, relatively accessible means of challenging contracts, and you obviously much higher numbers. But at the same time, I don't know whether the sort of threat of challenge is really taken as seriously by contracting authorities there. And um, that's maybe something you, you could talk to Andrea or someone else about, although I think you've already interviewed her, haven't you? But Yes. Because I, my feeling is when I'm working with a client in the UK or Ireland and they are potentially on the receiving end of a procurement challenge, that's something they take extremely seriously. And, you know, often they'll decide to cancel a procedure and start again simply to avoid having to go through that that lengthy process of challenge. And I don't know whether that really applies to contracting authorities in countries where the remedy system is not as expensive, perhaps not as big of a deal, essentially, to undergo a procurement challenge. And, you know, to my mind, that's actually a bit of a healthier system to have, to have a system whereby it's relatively easy for economic operators to bring a challenge, but it doesn't have the huge cost and time implications that a procurement challenge does in in the UK or Ireland. Because let's face it, people do get things wrong. The remedy system is there to ensure that there is an avenue of of redress um, when things do go wrong. So you just want to make sure it's not abused and that it's not used as this sort of nuclear threat, which I think it basically is in, in, in the UK and Ireland. Yeah, I think that's a very good point because I've got uh, experience in other jurisdictions, namely in Portugal and Spain, mm. and the normal thing is for every single tender procedure to actually be challenged. Right, okay. So you just take it for granted. And if you don't get a challenge, well, that was a good day for you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Whereas yeah. here in the UK, the perception is more of a cultural issue as well, which is if you get the challenge, that is perceived as being a black mark. You made a mistake as a procurement officer, that's why you got the challenge. Whereas in other countries, you say, okay, it's just the normal way of doing things. 
As for Sweden and Denmark, to a certain extent, they have remedy systems which allow other avenues for bidders to actually try to interfere with the process in a sense that if they think that something is going wrong or went wrong. So I think it is actually the Swedish Competition Authority who has the power to actually intervene during the procurement procedure. So that changes the dynamic a lot. And the fact that you can have different kinds of systems and remedies procedures, which are different from just going to the course, actually probably allows those systems and those procurement frameworks to work better. Another good example is Spain. Spain, a few years ago, they introduced a, a new review system or review mechanism whereby you could have access to administrative tribunals, literally independent tribunals and not dependent as they were in the past uh, many, many years ago. The fact that you can have a quick decision taken in a few months with a price that is reasonable actually has improved the way that the procurement market works overall. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, yeah. And I mean, a quick decision and also potentially one by someone who understands procurement and procurement exactly. law because they're dealing with it every day. And, you know, with, with all due respect to judges in the UK and Ireland, most of them are not dealing with procurement challenges with any type of regularity. I mean, we see now with the technology court in the UK that there are a couple of judges who have developed that expertise. But, you know, it, it is a difficult area, I think. And uh, judges, you know, are, are quite upfront about that. Sometimes they say, look, you know, I've had to go away and, and read hundreds of pages about public procurement, and I'm still not sure I'm applying the right approach here. And so that, I think, is not really an outcome that's in anyone's interest. It's a huge use of resources in order to resolve you know, which sometimes look like pretty stupid claims, to be honest, you know, or, or, or very on very minor points about did this person score this correctly, you know, and there's no implication sometimes that anyone has, has acted corruptly or that they've even really committed a serious breach of the rules, just that there was some kind of basic error that happened, but it takes so long and it takes so many resources to resolve that error. And then what is the outcome of that challenge? It doesn't necessarily mean that the challenger gets the contract. They might get damages if they're lucky. The authority might have to rerun the procedure. So it's, I think, the ratio of costs and resources going into procurement challenges versus what they're doing to improve outcomes or to remedy problems that have occurred in procedures, I think is the balance. We've, we've got it wrong at the moment in the UK and Ireland. And I think we would be well advised to look at systems that are in place in other countries and, you know, even potentially the procurement ombudsman system that they have in in Canada and and other countries. I'm a huge fan of the procurement ombudsman system and I think that is one of the best. Unfortunately, I don't see the UK adopting it anytime soon, but that's my take. One final question, procurement of innovation. Is it the idea of the future and will it always be the idea of the future? Yeah, well, I mean, it's got a bit of buzz attached to it. I, I think for a good reason, because particularly coming out of the financial crisis in the European Union. You know, there was a need to do more with less. Government went through a bit of an existential crisis in a lot of countries. You know, what what is our role? And I think innovation that really works is obviously it's something that everybody wants and everyone can agree on. What it actually means in practice, I think, is a bit more difficult. And I've been through a couple of innovation procurements recently where it's extremely different. It's, you know, it's 180 degrees away from normal procurement where you know what the outcome is, you know, and people talk about using functional or performance-based specifications. I mean, that's fine, but you still need to be able to evaluate, you know, what people are proposing to you. Uh, You need to be able to structure your contract in a way that creates the right incentives on both sides. So, yes, I think 
there is a capacity being built up to do it, but I don't think you could say anyone is really in the business in Europe of procuring innovation on a regular basis, or at least I'm not aware of it. And people often cite examples, you know, from, from the US about the work that NASA has done that led to the development of the internet or, you know, that health research networks have done. And it's interesting on a sort of anecdotal basis, but I'm not sure it really translates as a model on a, that can be adopted on a mass scale. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of all the sort of Horizon 2020 funding, because that's obviously there's a lot of that going around at the moment. But I guess I'm a little bit of a skeptic about the ability of EU funding programs to create a culture, <laughs> you know, a cultural change. I, you know, I, th- I think they can certainly be influential at the level where people are able to do things they wouldn't otherwise have been able to do. But if you're trying to push people into what is quite a profound cultural change, which I think innovation procurement is compared to sort of normal everyday procurement, that takes a lot of time and it takes sort of ongoing incentives rather than just, you know, having a one-time access to a European funding stream. There needs to be support at local level, at national level, and there needs to be an understanding of, you know, what is this? Is it valuable? Is it something that's going to get us towards our, our long-term objectives? I think we still have time for one quick final question. What do you like to see changing between today and 2025? Well, a lot. Uh, <laughs> Just one idea. One, one idea. Um, I'd like people to be less afraid of the procurement rules. I think there has been an over-legalization of the procurement rules. I think it's become way too complex. I'd like people to be comfortable that they can procure something, they can get the right results without breaking any laws. And if that puts a few of us who are, you know, procurement lawyers out of work, then so be it. You know, I think I think it's more important that, you know, when public money is being spent, that people have the confidence that they can do the right thing and that they're not going to wind up in court over it. Brilliant. I think that's a great way to finish the program. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. You can find me at my blog, tells.eu, or on Twitter, where I use two handles, at Detic for general discussion and at Public Procure for public procurement-related topics. As ever, I am grateful for the support of the British Academy Rising Star Engagement Awards, which made possible this project. See you next time.